Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. The mugshot, we've all seen the mugshot. And you know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population. It's incredible. You see black people walking around with my mugshot. Donald Trump's attempt at black outreach goes awry as he spews a litany of stereotypes, including that black people like him because he is a mugshot and is being discriminated against by the legal system. Also tonight, Trump is appealing his nine-figure civil fraud judgment, which grows by more than $100,000 every day, as prosecutors in another case ask a judge to slap a gag order on the former president. Plus, Michigan voters will go to the polls in tomorrow's primary, where President Biden faces a potentially significant protest vote over his support for Israel's war in Gaza. Good evening, everyone. I'm Michael Steele in for joy tonight. We begin with the reality we've known for months that is now becoming more and more clear by the day. The Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump. Just over 24 hours from now, polls will be closing in the next primary state of Michigan, where it is likely that once again, the twice impeached, four times indicted former president will be taking home a slate of delegates, bringing him one step closer to the Republican nomination. That's what we saw over the weekend in Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina, where Trump won by 20 points, receiving just under 60 percent of the vote. Not exactly the overwhelming victory someone who is essentially an incumbent would hope for, but still a clear sign that the party is decisively his for the taking. And it appears that many Republicans, even those who have up until this very moment resisted bending the knee, are accepting this reality. Like, for example, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Despite the fact that the senator hasn't talked to Trump since before January 6, 2021, NBC News is reporting today that top advisors to McConnell and Trump are engaging in behind the scenes, you guessed it, conversations about a potential endorsement of the former president. Then there's Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel, who earlier today officially announced that she will be stepping down from her post after the former president all but forced her out. To no one's surprise, Trump is endorsing handpicked loyalists, including his daughter-in-law, to take her place, clearing the way for Trump to rebrand the RNC just like he did his buildings as a real estate developer, which we all know how that turned out. Much like his Atlantic City casinos, he's going to run the party straight into the ground, eviscerating all that's left of the once proud GOP, and with it, the legacies of Eisenhower, Reagan, and Bush. Joining me now is Doug Jones, former Democratic senator from Alabama and distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and Tara Setmayer, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and former Republican communications director. Welcome to you both. So, so Tara, uh, this is uh, a moment. Uh, the party is now fully Trump. It is based, its base is his, its infrastructure is his, its dollars and donors are his. 
How does this all turn out? Well, I would argue, Michael, that the party has been his for quite some time. And you mentioned Mitch McConnell earlier in your setup. And, you know, Mitch McConnell had an opportunity to vanquish Trump, as did many Republicans after January 6th. I mean, the guy led a violent insurrection against the United States. And, you know, for the first time ever in history, a peaceful transition of power was interrupted and incited by Donald Trump. And that wasn't enough. And Mitch McConnell at the time um, gave the speech of his of his career about Donald Trump and, and about what he did, but yet used some uh, constitutional argument to say, well, it, it should be in the courts. We shouldn't do it here where they could have convicted him in the Senate. Um, and we wouldn't be here now because Donald Trump would no longer be eligible to run for president. So you have Mitch McConnell now, which I'm not surprised at the Lincoln Project. We've been saying this. All of these guys would fall in line because of political power and cowardice. And then you have the RNC, which has been pretty much the uh, a, a campaign arm of the Trump campaign for several years. But they've um, their their final step now is that they're going to bring in his daughter in law to to be the co-chair. I mean, Michael, you know what it's like to run the RNC. Uh, and the, and, and the, these are the people they're putting in charge. It's all a grift. It's because of money. They want to be able to funnel money now to Donald Trump because of his legal, his legal bills. So the idea that the Republican Party is not in the image of, of Trump until now, all of a sudden, this is not a revelation. This has been going on now yeah. for several years yeah. and every opportunity they've had to offer him from them. They haven't. They put their foot in the gas and embraced him. And it's now become a party that's unrecognizable, a party that is OK with a twice impeached, a criminally indicted, pro-authoritarian, malignant narcissist who has no problem wanting to tear up the Constitution on day one and become a dictator. Great so, Republicans. That That's a great brand, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good branding moment for them, I think. You know, they, it'll, it'll work out, sure. I, Doug, I, I think, you know, uh, to much of what uh, Tara said, um, you have that, po that political uh, storyline un unfolding today. Uh, but more importantly, you also have a, a sort of a quasi-policy uh, storyline unfolding as NBC News reporting that Biden and Trump are holding competing trips to the U.S.-Mexican border on Thursday uh, to talk border. Oh, my gosh, we're actually going to talk about the border. So on the one hand, um, it's about time. President Biden uh, really kind of put that front and center for himself and, and particularly, I think, take advantage of the opportunity that, on the other hand, Republicans fail to take advantage of uh, by actually uh, supporting a border, legisla border legislation that the Senate and the House uh, presumably tried to pass. What's your take on what we are looking for on Thursday? Well, you know, Michael, I think so many people are making a lot of the fact that uh, Biden and Trump will be there on the same day. But I think it was really important that the president uh, go to the border before the State of the Union on March the 7th. I think that that's the more important story here, because he has now seen that the, the Congress is not going to do anything. I, there was such high hopes for some border security measures. Uh, for, for what everybody knows is a very serious problem down at the southern border. And there were such high hopes. You had a, a conservative Republican negotiating in good faith with a couple of Democrats, hammering out a very significant bill, one of the toughest in decades. But yet Donald Trump tanked it, just like he tanked one in 2018 when I was there. 
So the president is having to do this now. You know, look, people have criticized him for not doing more, but his hands are really tied a lot on the border. And the fact is, he is an institutionalist. This mm-hmm. is a legislative session. He's been waiting for that. He had that in his hand, and now he doesn't. And he's got to go to the border. He's got to do some things on his own and hope it'll pass legal muster. So I, I think that's going to be the real story. And I think that's an important story to your point. And I think you're right to have the president do this before the State of the Union really kind of sets up narratively the the storylines that he liked to explore in his speech on on that uh, evening. But I think there's also another storyline, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, unfolding in Michigan this week with this primary and the fact that you have a a growing number of disaffected, um, you know, particularly younger voters over the policy such as it is. uh, in the Middle East with respect to Israel and, and Palestine. How do you think that piece fits into this storyline as well for the president? You know, that is a very difficult uh, needle for him to thread right now. Uh, he has got to support Israel. That is the pro-democracy uh, line that he has had. He has supported Israel for a long time, but he's also been a very strong supporter uh, of, a, of a, two, uh, a two-party state. Uh, that is the, a two-state solution. He has been really out there pushing that. And I think what you're seeing uh, publicly, you're seeing uh, the the administration moving more and more to try to figure out how to get a ceasefire, get those hostages home. What we don't see, and and I I, I hope people recognize this, you're not going to see most of what this administration is doing playing out in the news media or on social media. There is a lot that that. Anthony Blinken and the national security people are doing behind the scenes. And I think they're putting more and more pressure on the Netanyahu government to come to a ceasefire, to do those things necessary, get humanitarian aid. And what I'm hoping is that that will happen sooner rather than later. And that as we get closer to the election, folks that are disaffected right now, and I understand that. I mean, I get that. They're going to see the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and they'll come back home. So, so Tara, meanwhile, uh, back in Happy Land, uh, CPAC occurred this past weekend. And as you know, uh, from when we used to go to CPAC, uh, at the end, they'd always do a straw poll. Uh, and, you know, whether it's for the president, well, that's not relevant this time because right. everybody's in the tank for t- Trump. But they did a vice presidential straw poll. Uh, the CPAC Veep straw poll uh, shows that South Carolina, South Dakota uh, Governor Kristi Noem at 15 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy. Hmm. How did he get up there? 15 percent. Former Hawaii rep- uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard at nine. Elise Stefanik, whom everyone thinks is kind of like an odds on favorite at eight. Uh, Tim Scott. Uh, wow, Tim. Hmm. Eight percent after all of that. Uh, and I think it's important to note that, you know, a lot of folks have been talking up the whole Christy Nome Trump angle. What's your take here? How, how do you see these sweepstakes sort of playing out? Well, you and I both know from our years at CPAC (laughs) that the straw poll isn't exactly the most scientific or reliable poll. I mean, Ron Paul used to win that thing all the time. So I'm going to dismiss that as as anything that's serious. But I can also tell you, those who know, um, Christy Noem will never be vice president. She'll never be a a pick for Trump because of some of her behavior uh, with other people in the Trump circles. So that will disqualify her off the top. And again, this is one 
one of those celebrity, um, you know, contests where it's like, oh, who was there? Who was top of mind? And oh, yeah, we like Chrissy. No, it's not. It, it, it's not happening with her. Um, now, Elise Stefanik, on the other hand, does have a, a greater chance because she has been an absolute sycophant. And she has decided to completely sell her soul to remake herself into a, a Trumplican in ways that are uh, hard to imagine that someone could be such a polar opposite of what they used to be when they first came into Congress. Elise Stefanik is a perfect example of that, of someone who's sold everything out to for political ambition. So to the point where she's defending Donald Trump in his comments calling January 6th uh, defendants and prisoners, political prisoners. I mean, it's really um, pretty obnoxious and outrageous with how low she has gone. Um, but I mean, she's just par, par for the courts. The fact that I, I just have to go back to the Mitch McConnell thing for a second. The fact that Mitch McConnell, seriously, Michael, that Mitch McConnell would even be considering uh, endorsing Donald Trump after everything that Trump has done to him as well. I mean, calling his wife all kinds of ethnic slurs, calling him a piece of crap, according to Maggie Haberman's book, making fun of him and his age, saying all of these disparaging things about him. And, and Mitch McConnell can't stand Donald Trump. He knows that he is someone who isn't a serious yeah. person, but he's willing to do this, which is like if Trump, if, if McConnell comes out and endorses Trump, what that does is that once again, it opens up the others in the Senate and other donors yeah. to say that Donald Trump is someone we can still support, despite everything he's done. I mean, the day Mitch McConnell endorses Donald Trump, you might as well write the obituary for the Republican Party because it is dead and buried from any image and likeness in which that you and I, the party that we joined, or the party that Reagan was the leader of, or the party that Bill Buckley said we're supposed to be as conservatives, the ones that yell stop athwart history when no one else will, that party is dead and gone. Because, my God, could you be any more of a coward, Mitch McConnell, when you're in a position to actually say, no, we cannot allow someone like this to be uh, uh, the president of the United States yeah. again? But because of well, political expediency, he's willing to do it. It's really quite pathetic. Well, we're not short on drama in the Republican Party at this point. so <laughs> That's why I left it, my friend. <laughs> One of many reasons. The next episode is The GOP Turns, uh, coming soon. <laughs> Doug Jones and Tara Stepmayer, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, Trump is unsurprisingly using plain old racism and stereotypes to claim that he has the vote of the black people. And yes, he said, actually, I quote, the black people. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
On Friday, Donald Trump spoke at the Black Conservative Federation annual gala ahead of South Carolina's Republican primary. And this was was his pitch to black people. I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. It's, it's been pretty amazing. I'm being indicted for you, the American people. I'm being indicted for you, the black population. Oh, and if that weren't enough, he had to add this. The mugshot, we've all seen the mugshot. And you know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population. It's incredible. You see black people walking around with my mugshot. Is he indulging his own brand of racism and stereotypes? Absolutely he is. But he's also echoing right-wing commentators who seem to base everything they know about black people on early 90s rap videos. In August, Dinesh D'Souza tweeted about Trump's mugshot, quote, Think Tupac Shakur, ultimate gangster. Around the same time, the commentator who said last week that Trump's tacky gold shoes would appeal to black people had a similar thought. As one black lady I spoke with earlier today here in New Orleans said, Trump's a gangster. And that means he has cred. That probably never happened. But it doesn't help when black Republicans like Congressman Byron Donalds are doing the stereotyping for them. But worse, creating a false equivalency between the prosecution of Trump's criminality and the ongoing treatment of African-Americans within the criminal justice system. Sorry, Byron. It's just not the same. This is political persecution from the Department of Justice and from radical DAs throughout our country. This is something similar that black people had to deal with the, with the justice system themselves. Joining me now is Clay Kane, Sirius XM host and author of The Grift, The Downward Spiral of Black Republicans. Uh, Clay, it's, it's a pleasure having you. I, I, I you know, <laughs> I'm thinking about this. I just didn't really know where to start. Uh, in this conversation, uh, because there is a lot that is so insulting. Um, but I'll start with this reaction by uh, Biden-Harris co-chair Cedric Richmond, who said Donald Trump claiming that black Americans will support him because of his criminal charges is insulting. It's moronic and it's just plain racist. Nikki Haley, quote, it's disgusting, but that's what happens when he goes off the teleprompter. Does it work? Does what he's doing work is is, you know, because there are a lot of folks out there talking, oh, the black vote is moving his way. Black men especially are, you know, amping up for Trump. What what's your take and read on why this effort by Trump and the reaction to it by African-Americans? I don't think it works for black voters. I think black voters are much smarter than this, than what the polls may say and so on. Uh, One thing that's really important to point out is that uh, there is no discrimination there. If anybody in my hometown of West Philadelphia did what Trump did, they'd be behind bars. That's a clear distinction that Trump, the GOP, Byron Donalds, black Republicans uh, don't seem to make. I don't think any of us can relate to, with all due respect, a, a rich white guy from Queens who has more felony counts than I could, I could possibly uh, imagine anybody in my neighborhood having. But the other part of it is that someone like Byron Donalds or the, the black Republicans in the room, the black conservatives in the room who clapped for that, who cheered for that, it is literally a page from my book, The Grift, 
It is a personification. The reason why they did that, because they know they have to toe the line. And it would make someone like Arthur Fletcher, who I know you knew, the father of affirmative action, Colin Powell, all the way back to Jackie Robinson, roll in their graves. It is disgraceful from Trump and the people who enable him. How do you see uh, the the response to this more broadly? Uh, you talk about the, the African-American Republicans in the room, uh, but then more broadly, what what does that say about our where we are politically and culturally that you have a presidential candidate that can feel yeah, I can get out and say these things with impunity. You had the president back at a rally in an overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly white town of uh, Diamonddale in Michigan in, in the last like, presidential cycle when he was quoted saying, you know, to black folks, you're living in poverty. Well, we got the side. Let's just play what the president said uh, to black voters in 2016. You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. of your youth is unemployed. What the hell do you have to lose? A lot. Because why the hell do you stereotype black people? I mean, we're, you know, you're living in, not all of us live in poverty. In fact, in some states, there are more white people in poverty than black people. But he goes into a largely white community to, to, to spew the stereotypes. What is the what is the power there that he's trying to to garner? Does it does it enrage white folks? Does it enable them? What is what is the dynamic that we should be looking for when he does that? And how do you clap back against it? You know, it's a really important point because it's not just Trump. Uh, Trump is not happening in a vacuum. I call it Southern strategy 2.0 tactics using otherism, to be quite frank, to try and gain the white conservative Republican base. And it's beautiful that Nikki Haley called him out, sure. But this is the same person who could not say the Civil War was about slavery. The other presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis, uh, saying there's personal benefits to slavery. Even governors across the country, like Governor Tate Reeves in Mississippi, making April Confederate Heritage Month. Uh, This is embedded in the Republican Party. And I think about Will Hurd, a black Republican, who said the GOP must deal with the racism in their party, not only from the politicians, but the base. Why does this resonate with the base? This should turn off the base. Can you imagine if Joe Biden said more people can relate to me, more black folks can relate to me because my son was indicted? That would be an international story. And you would have every black Republican and every every white conservative saying it was egregious. So Why does this resonate with the base? I think it's a long time in the making. Southern strategy, welfare queen narrative, Willie Horton ad, the birther movement. The GOP has to make a decision what kind of base they're going to appeal to. Well, I think we have a a good sense of what that is right now. So I guess the question is, um, what what do you see happening writ large in the black community to sort of Clarify for America as we watch uh, the pushback against critical race theory, uh, pushback on the teaching of black history. A lot of that. What should we be doing as a black community now to clarify for America what these stereotypes are and why they need to stop them? I think we have to remember that there has been a war in our history for a very long time. It just didn't start. It just didn't happen in this moment. Uh, Trump made those comments on W.E.B. Du Bois's birthday. That's the that's that's the end. That's his birthday. He made it on February 23rd. And I want to also say when we think about the black community and the black voting bloc, 
The most important voting block is the non-voter. So I want to say to folks out there, especially if you are a black person, you're a non-voter, you feel disengaged, you feel like you don't care. The answer isn't to disengage. It's to engage even more. If you don't do politics, politics will do you. Michael, Mm -hmm. we've had this conversation before. It really is about the long game. You're not going to get what you want in one year, in one term sometimes. Think of the long game. And I think of West Philly. I think of Detroit. I think of Atlanta. I think that this man shows us who he is. I think we're going to get that in 2024. I have faith in us. Oh, we're going to get it all right. And I have faith in us too. Clay Kane, it's good to see you again. Thank you, my friend. Up next, breaking news today in two legal cases against Donald Trump. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has requested a partial gag order ahead of next month's hushed money criminal case, citing the former president's history of inflammatory remarks against witnesses, lawyers and court staff. And Trump has appealed the nearly half billion dollar civil fraud judgment against him. But the longer he delays, the more his penalty increases. That's coming up next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. As expected, Donald Trump has now filed notice of an appeal in his New York City frauds case, which resulted in a whopping $454 million judgment against him. In the filing, Trump's attorney said that they want an appeals court to determine whether Judge Arthur Engeron committed errors of law and or fact and whether his, he abused his discretion and or acted in excess of his jurisdiction. Missing from today's filing is any indication that Trump has put up the cash or posted a bond in order to stay the enforcement of the judgment won by New York Attorney General Letitia James. That is something James has made sure to remind Trump of each day, noting that the judgment continues to grow by a whopping $114,000 a day because of the interest. And in other Trump legal news out of New York, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is seeking a gag order on Trump ahead of his hush money trial scheduled to begin next month, citing his long history of making public and inflammatory remarks about people involved in his legal cases. Joining me now is Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. Mary, it's so good to see you. It seems like it was just a few days ago. It was. <laughs> so let's start, let's start with uh, the latest news, which is pretty interesting, uh, with the headlines screaming out the trial starting this month. Manhattan DA asked judge for a gag order, where the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has asked for what is called a narrowly ta- tailored gag order that would bar Trump from making or directing others to make public statements about potential witnesses. Talk to us about what this uh, particular uh, effort is all about. 
I think one of the things that the district attorney did that I think was really smart is he basically came and he said, look, we're asking for the same type of limited restrictions on public statements that Mr. Trump can can make um, consistent with the exact same order that the D.C. Circuit affirmed Mm -hmm. and ordered in the D.C. case involving January 6th. Because, you know, in that case, Judge Tanya Chutkin in the district court had issued a limited gag order. He had appealed that. The D.C. Circuit limited a little bit more than what Judge Chutkin had done. And, you know, Alvin Bragg thought, hey, I'm going to just go in and ask for the same thing. This has already made it up to one court of appeals, not my court of appeals, but another highly respected uh, federal court of appeals. And I think that was a really smart move on his part. So it's about, you know, not making statements or directing others to make statements about known or foreseeable witnesses that could be uh, about their participation in the case. Also directing them not to make statements about uh, attorneys mm-hmm. within the DA's office, uh, court staff, their families that would be intended to or directing others to that would be intended to interfere, materially interfere right. with the case or making public statements about jurors. That's right. the thing he added on that was not part of the D.C. Well, which, uh, which is important because uh, I, I've been saying for a long time that a lot of what Trump's drama is about is trying to influence the potential jury pool that would have to judge him. The other thing that was interesting uh, about the gag order uh, was uh, describing threats to his office. Um, The district attorney's office has also received hundreds of threats in the wake of and connected to defendants' public attacks. The office also responded to terroristic mailings twice around the time of the defendant's indictment in this matter. So there's serious um, concerns about not just what, you know, uh, the guy, you know, barring Trump from making noise about people and just right. saying running his mouth, but also about potential threats that uh, result from all of that. Absolutely. And these are cases, you know, each and one of these, we don't have to speculate about what Trump might do, because in each case here in Alvin Bragg's case, as well as the civil cases in New York, the criminal cases in D.C. and Georgia uh, and even Florida, Judges have actually been threatened. Mm -hmm. White powder, right, sent to their offices. Real things have already happened. And so there's been serious real consequences. As we know from um, Jack Smith's case in uh, in the District of Columbia, he also indicated how much money they've had to spend on security, right? Millions of dollars on security for the prosecutors and their team. Uh, The FBI has indicated in other uh, Mm -hmm. instances what it's uh, spending on security. So these are very, very serious matters. And, um, you know, there's some of these threats have involved death threats. There have been people prosecuted for making threats against judges in Mr. Trump's cases. So it's not something where there's speculation here. There is an actual track record. Right. There's, there's a, and it's an important one to take note of. I want to sh- shift gears a little bit because there's so many Trump cases yes. out here. Uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith responded to Trump's uh, selective prosecution discovery request Uh, uh, noting there has never been a case in American history in which a former official has engaged in conduct remotely similar to Trump's. The defendants have not identified anyone who has engaged in a remotely similar suite of uh, willful and deceitful criminal conduct and not been prosecuted, nor could they. Uh, This case is different from Trump's filing requesting the case be dismissed over the same selective prosecution claim. 
Talk to us about that difference and what what's happening here with the special counsel. So special counsel, you know, uh, he had to respond to a selective prosecution uh, claim up in D.C. He responded to that, you know, uh, in motions up there. And now Trump has filed essentially the same type of a motion down at Mar- in, in the Mar-a-Lago case. And I will note that one of the things that Alvin Bragg filed also today was a motion in limite asking mm-hmm. the judge there not, not to, to allow him that, to right? make uh, a selective yes. prosecution claim in front of the jury. So right. this is a repeat strategy of Trump, right? I'm being persecuted. I'm being being, um, you know, prosecuted purely for political purposes. And what Jack Smith is really doing is calling him out and saying there's absolutely you know, I can't you can't make a selective prosecution claim to show that you're treated different from others similarly situated because mm-hmm. there is no, no one else similarly situated except you, you, because you're the one doing the crime. Right? <laughs> right. So where does where do we go next here? What's what's the next thing? Big thing we should expect. About thirty seconds left. So um, there are there will be a hearing in Mar-a-Lago on Friday. This is where I think it's really widely anticipated that Judge Cannon will decide whether she's putting off that May twentieth trial date. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will we are still you know every day waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court yeah. to tell us whether they're going to take up the immunity case. Ah, uh, the Supreme Court, Mary McCord. Thank you very much for being here. Up next, a startling new warning from former Trump officials on the absolute security threat he poses if he wins in November. We'll be right back. Donald Trump has battled intelligence agencies. He has compromised and politicized them, too. And it will only get worse if he's elected president again. That's according to 18 former uh, former officials of Trump's own administration who told Politico that Trump is likely to use a second presidency to overhaul the nation's spy agencies. Trump, who already tried to revamp intelligence agencies during his first term, is likely to re-up those plans and push even harder to replace people perceived as hostile to his political agenda with inexperienced loyalists. Joining me now is John Brennan, former CIA director and MSNBC senior national security security analyst. Uh, Mr. Director, it's good to see you again. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that I don't think people really appreciate about uh, this side of the election equation uh, that they do indeed have uh, consequences, and particularly with respect to our nation's national security. So what does it say to you when 18 members uh, from the security and intelligence community from the previous administration come out and lay out such a stark warning about the former president running for the presidency again? Well, Michael, I think that's the most significant aspect of this. These are individuals with established conservative credentials who have worked for many decades over multiple administrations, and they worked directly for Mr. Trump. And they saw him up and close and personal in terms of what he did to try to exploit the position of the office of the presidency to to manipulate the intelligence and law enforcement system. And their stark warnings, I think, are a real warning shot uh, to the American public that if Trump is to be reelected, he, in fact, will use all the powers of the presidency to reorganize these uh, institutions, to make them putty in his hands so that he can use the intelligence and law enforcement agencies to be able to go after his enemies and also to not follow through with their obligations under the law to carry out their faithful duties. 
It, it says a lot that we're at this point, this inflection point, where uh, you have national security officials, our, our global partners uh, and allies, all expressing this general concern. But meanwhile, you have the Republican uh, establishment leadership and its uh Putative nominee, leaning more towards Putin, leaning more towards authoritarian regimes. How do you see our European allies in particular rebalancing the scales um, as as folks seriously anticipate a Trump return to the White House? Well, I think a lot of the officials in Europe are aghast at the prospect that Donald Trump might return to the White House. Uh, for the past 75 years, uh, European nations have relied on the United States to be the ultimate security guarantor, to be faithful to its NATO obligations in terms of defending NATO against adversaries. And given Mr. Trump's fawning attitude toward Mr. Putin and his rather solicitous comments, I think it raises questions in the minds of many, not just politicians in Europe and members of the government, but also the European citizens, that the United States is no longer that bulwark against the expansion of first Soviet communism and now Russian expansionism. And therefore, I think it is something that, uh, that Europeans are looking at very closely at in terms of our election and doing what they can, in fact, to try to hedge against the possible return of what essentially is an authoritarian leader. What Donald Trump is doing is basically taken right out of the authoritarian's playbook to control some media outlets so he can get his his word out to his his following and to others, discredit the government, discredit the judicial system, and also then to use the intelligence and security and law enforcement services as his tools in order to go after his enemies and to continue to solidify his hold on the institutions of governance. Very worrying for so many people, not just in Europe, but also around the world. And and you have that as a backdrop. And then you also have, you know, the 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 murder, uh, the killing of Alexei Navalny. The Navalny we heard today uh, reports that uh, his body has been returned to his mother. Uh, but there's also an interesting uh, story that's out talking about uh, a potential prisoner swap. Alexei Navalny was set to be part of a prisoner swap before he died, claims ally, claims, uh, ally that uh, the swap would have alleged seen, uh, allegedly seen Navalny and two U.S. citizens freed by Russia. What do you make of that? Uh, this, this, this story now that um, every, behind the scenes, Navalny was being prepared as part of a prisoner swap, but then suddenly passed away. Yeah, there's still a lot we don't know about what happened to Alexei Navalny, but it's clear that he was apparently healthy just the day before he was found uh, dead uh, in his prison cell. And therefore, it's clear that Mr. Putin, who takes ruthless measures against anybody he either fears or seeks revenge against, saw Alexei Navalny as a threat, whether or not it was part of these negotiations in terms of what was ongoing, and he, he wanted to find an easy exit out of those negotiations, because once Navalny was dead, they ended. Uh, but it's quite clear, I think, to everybody that Vladimir Putin is responsible for the death of Alexei Navalny, uh, and his uh, now widow, uh, Yulia, is going to carry on uh, Navalny cause, which many, many Russians, both inside of Russia and outside, really believe is so critically important in order to end the rule of Mr. Putin uh, that honestly has uh, led to the death of so many Russians over the course of so many years. I just real quick, I, just a quick answer on this. Do you think that's something that she can do from outside of Russia? 
Um, it's going to be challenging, but there are individuals inside of Russia. I mean, even inside the Russian establishment. We'll look at General Prokosin. I think there are individuals yeah. who, in fact, for one reason or another, either on the left or right of Mr. Putin, really are upset with his rule. And so, uh, you know, Yulia, I think, has the credentials and the the name that I think will help to galvanize some people in opposition to Mr. Putin. All right. Former CIA Director John Brennan, thank you very much. Up next, a live report from Michigan, where tomorrow's Democratic primary could be a bellwether for how progressives really feel about President Biden's handling of the war in Gaza. We'll be right back. I'm scared and sad. Just because I have no idea which one I would pick. Like, you know, I don't feel comfortable picking Joe Biden, but also I don't feel comfortable picking Trump either. I think they're too old and they're too out of touch. And I think at this point, it's just more like a pissing match. They're not like, I don't know. I just don't think either of them are the right people to be running the country right now. Presidential race heads to Michigan tomorrow, which is holding its primary for both Democrats and Republicans. Polls will close at 8 p.m., 24 hours from now. NBC Shaquille Brewster joins us from Grand Rapids, where he's been talking to voters there as part of MSNBC series called The Deciders. Shaq, what are people deciding, my friend? Well, I'll first start with why we come to Kent County. This is one of those swing counties, or at least has been, despite its historical record as being a reliably Republican county. We saw back in 2016, Donald Trump win by just three percentage points. And then 2020, Joe Biden flipped this county and also flipped the state of Michigan. So we've been talking with folks here about that likely general election matchup that we're seeing between the two frontrunners, the men who have only won the contests that have been voted on up to this point in this primary process, that's Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and you get a big sense of dissatisfaction. And one thing that we're also noting is that dissatisfaction is what Nikki Haley is trying to play up and play on as she decides to stay in the race. I was at a press event with her earlier today, and she used the fact that Voters aren't happy with their options with the two front runners in this race, almost as a rationale for her to stay in this race. How voters are hearing that, that really remains to be seen. And that's something we'll definitely be watching as they head to the polls tomorrow, Michael. Well, Nikki's trying to get people to to vote for her. So is Joe Biden, apparently. I mean, there there's some serious efforts underway uh, to get voters to vote uh, uncommitted. Talk to us a little bit about what you're finding there. Yeah, that's one of the main storylines here in this state when we, for much of this process, we've been focusing on the action and activity on the Republican side. Here you have a group called Listen to Michigan. It's a grassroots organization. They call themselves low budget, uh, last minute organization that has been trying to uh, get Muslim and Arab Americans and young voters who are dissatisfied with President Biden's reaction and handling of the Israel Hamas war to instead of voting for Joe Biden on the ballot, to vote uncommitted. There's actually a word on the ballot that is uncommitted. I spoke to a a leader of that group earlier today, and they're saying that their goal is to have about 10,000 people vote uncommitted to show how many people in Biden's base are not satisfied 
with his handling of that situation overseas. The context that you're seeing here, and it's clear that the Biden campaign is at least watching this play out. Uh, the context here and that officials are pointing out is that it was about 20,000 people who voted uncommitted back in 2020 and back in 2012 when there wasn't this organized effort. Uh, Gabe Gutierrez, a colleague, uh, spoke to Governor Gretchen Whitmer earlier today, and she said that she can expect to see a sizable amount of people vote in that protest vote kind of way by supporting uncommitted. That will be something that many people are watching to see how big that support is, especially considering they didn't have much money around them. This is really a group of volunteers, a vocal group of volunteers that have come out and are trying to get Democrats to vote against Biden and vote for not a specific candidate, but to say that they're uncommitted tomorrow. On the other side, you've got the Michigan Republican Party that is in complete and utter disarray with the primary on oh, Tuesday, gosh, yeah. but then two, I know, right? And two caucuses <laughs> on Saturday. I don't we think got we have time to seconds. fully get through it. <laughs> <laughs> so what, that's just going to be a mess, right? That That's really confusing and a mess. Yeah. Yeah. It's confusing yeah. and a mess because let's start with the fact that there's a primary tomorrow, but most of the delegates, the vast majority of delegates in the Republican side will be determined at those right. two conventions, rival dueling conventions that will take place on Saturday. All right. Thank you, Shaquille Brewster. Appreciate you, brother. Good luck out there. And that's tonight's readout. Joy Reed's demur- read returns tomorrow night. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.